before we pray, I'll just introduce the title of our consideration this morning, that is, The Lord Reigns. The Lord Reigns. Let's pray together. Father, we rejoice in you and your awesome splendor that you are mighty, you are almighty, you are wise, you are all wise, you are here and there and everywhere in between. You reign supremely, and we're thankful that Jesus has already been crowned the victor. We know that he rules over us. He is the head of the church. And we long, Father, to be a clear picture of him, that his dominion would be obvious in us and through us. Help us this morning as we consider these passages that we would humble ourselves and that we would not get caught up in disputations, but that we would be caught up by our King, that we would value and worship Him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We all like storybook endings. The guy gets the girl. The illness is healed. The dog comes back home. And even better than those, rightly the Patriots win the Super Bowl over the Giants. (laughs) And all the wrongs are made right. It's fun to have these things end this way. For those of us who know God, for those of us who are God's people, all of the wrongs will indeed be made right, every last one of them. The distortions of this world will dissipate. The crooked things of this world will be made straight. But as we talk about this, we're no longer talking about a fairy tale. So many of these aspirations that people have, they they don't come to fruition. The guy doesn't always get the girl. The dog oftentimes doesn't come home, and your favorite team doesn't always win. We're not talking about a fairy tale here. We're talking about reality. We're talking about truth. We're talking about a God who will, in fact, fulfill his own design. God will bring to fruition all that he had designed. He will bring it to full consummation. That is our consideration this morning. What we know is that God reigns supreme, or supremely, depending on how you want to use the word, over the universe that he has created. What God has created, he has created with a specific intention. And one of those intentions, as we've discussed over and over, is to dwell among his people so that we would exercise his dominion over the earth. God is present among his people, and through that presence gives us grace. And that grace enables us to fulfill his design, which is that he would be represented and that his works would be done 
on the earth. That's the dominion that he wants to give us by his presence. Essentially, as God's, God dwells with his people, we're to reflect his character and his nature to the world around us. And Israel definitely failed at this. Which is why we're at this point in our study of the book of Micah. They have failed, and as a result of that, they're hearing all about God's bringing forth discipline. And the reason for that discipline was because they failed at this very issue. God made himself present, and he wanted them to reflect that presence in and among the world. And instead, they followed the pathway of the world, and so God sends forth judgment in the the form of the Assyrian captivity and the northern ten tribes and the Babylonian captivity and the southern two tribes, God was bringing forth judgment because his people refused to fulfill his design. As Micah chapter 3 comes to a conclusion, we see in this word picture that Jerusalem would be destroyed and laid bare Look at what it says at verse 12. It says, therefore, chapter 3, Micah 3 and verse 12, therefore, because of you, speaking of the leaders, the priests, the, the, the government, and the prophets, because of you, Zion shall be plowed like a field, Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins, and the mountains of the temple like the bare hills of the forest. And so we have this very negative end to chapter 3 but we have a a swift transition. A swift transition as we come to chapter 4. And what we'll notice is that Micah describes something altogether different. Isn't that just the way our God works? He sees us in the midst of our rubble. He sees us in the midst of our despair He sees us in the midst of our mess and he changes everything. This he's doing here in the book of Micah. This he does countless times over individually. And this he will do corporately in the latter times. Look at what he says in verse 1. Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and peoples shall flow or spring forth to it. Many nations shall come and say, Come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways and we will, we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion the law shall go forth and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He, he shall judge between many peoples and rebuke strong nations afar off. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. But everyone shall sit under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. For all people walk, each in the name of his God, 
but we will walk in the name of the Lord, our God. How long? Forever and ever. And if I could just add another word to that, it's a Greek term, amen. We'll walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. Amen. This is good news, friends. We go from the, the destruction to God doing what no one, no one else can do. Now Jerusalem is rising up. The temple of the mountain is prominent. Instead of disgrace, we see majesty. What we see Micah describing here is God's kingdom. And what I want to note, we're going to have some fun this morning, a little bit of a different time of our discussion. We're going to talk some theology this morning. This is important for us. Um, These issues that God has contained in his word are important. We don't just say, well, you know, know, we're not, we haven't become pansationalists. You know what a pansationalist is, don't you? It'll all pan out in the end. No, we're, we're not, we're not going to stay there. We want to know what God has revealed. We want to do so to the best of our ability. And there are some difficulties. There are some difficulties. It's a, it's a challenging subject for many people. First, as we enter our way into this discussion on God's kingdom, I want to note two aspects of the kingdom. First of all, there's a universal kingdom. A universal kingdom. This is God reigning over his creation from beginning to end without ceasing. This is true. At all times, God is reigning over his creation. This is God's universal kingdom. The Bible says, calls it that in, it doesn't use that terminology, but this is described in Psalm 145 and verse 13, where the Bible says, Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout what? All generations. That's God's universal kingdom. It it has never been usurped. It has never been thrown. And it never will be thrown. God's kingdom reigns over all. It's his universal kingdom. There is a second aspect of God's kingdom that we must also come to some understanding of. And that is God's mediatorial, love that word, mediatorial kingdom. Now, what that means is God mediating his kingdom through an agency. In other words, here's God ruling. He rules over everything. And then, in the mediatorial concept of the kingdom, he's using different people to exercise his dominion. Now, you can see one of the mediators of the kingdom would have been Moses, right? He ruled over the the house of Israel. He, He led the children of Israel. He gave them the law. Obviously, God gave the law, but Moses was the instrument. Moses was was a mediator of the kingdom, as was then Joshua, as he led them into the promised land. And then you see judges rising up through the book of Judges. These would be mediators of the kingdom in one form or another. And then maybe even someone like Samuel, as a prophet of the nation, who would then uh, anoint Saul and then David. We we see these mediators of the kingdom. And and then what we want to notice, when, when Jesus comes... The real king of the kingdom comes, and then he left. Does that mean the mediatorial kingdom is now just suspended? It's, it's no longer? What, what's, what happens with the mediatorial kingdom? Well, I submit to you that 
while it's not in its fullest expression, there are elements of kingdom truth as you look at the church. And that's this way, because Jesus is what over the church? He's the head of the church, and we are his what? Body. And, and the way that we operate is through the empowerment of his spirit. And so what we really are doing, every time we're serving God together, is we're, we're really doing, we're fulfilling elements of this mediatorial kingdom, but not in its fullest most glorious form. God reigning through the agency of another. Now when Micah turns in chapter 4 and verse 1 to this concept of the latter times, he is obviously not talking about God's universal kingdom that is always in operation. The question that we have to answer to to at least grapple with the passage some is is what Micah is saying here in Micah chapter 4 verses 1 through 5, is this something referring to To heaven, is this a heavenly concept? Or is it an earthly concept? Are we able to understand this passage? Should it be taken literally? Or simply spiritually? We read the passage already. As you read it, it's very earthy, isn't it? It's very earthy in its orientation. He's talking about mountains. He's talking about temples. He's talking about people. He's talking about them flowing up to it. He talks about them um, learning the the law of God that is issuing forth from Zion and Jerusalem. He's talking about people saying, we want to walk in the name of the the Lord. We want to fulfill the law of God. We want to learn His ways and do His ways. It's very earthy. Then he talks about uh, the, the folks there not learning war anymore. See you later, Navy War College. It's gone, don't need it anymore. We're done with that. Not learning war anymore. In fact, we don't even need the weaponry. The weaponry's got to be used for something. May as well turn it into agricultural tools. Do we need agricultural tools in heaven? Methinks not. I'm just saying, I don't, I don't think we need agricultural tools in heaven. It's very earthy in its tone. And then he says, listen, everyone's going to be under his own vine in this fig tree. That's very uh, depictive, uh, you know, something that we don't really think about sitting underneath a, a vine. Well, what, what grows on vines? Figs, grapes, tomatoes, whatever. We've got all this vegetation growing, and, and we're sitting on it. Listen, look, at, look at all this flourishing. This is the concept of, of prosperity going on there. This is very, very earthy, I think. And then he talks about In verse 5, all the people walking in the name of their God, all the people right now, currently, in the time of his writing, they're all walking in the name of their God, but we shall, we shall, now we're talking about something future, we shall walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. There's this very earthy in its its orientation, as far as I can see. So I don't think that we want to just say, well, that's all spiritual, that's all in heaven. I think there's more to it than just saying this is a, a heavenly passage, though though heaven's great, and we want to talk about heaven, we, want to, we, we yearn for heaven, we're waiting for heaven, I think there's, there's a lot of earth here. Take a look, please, with me as we try to con- consider this a little further. The book of Revelation, chapter 20. As we get to Revelation 20, we have this picture being painted for us by John, and he's very specific, and he's very descriptive, I think, for just a short passage. He brings a lot to the table here. Now, I want to read verses 1 through 10. I want to ask some questions about this text so we can try to help understand the relationship, or lack thereof, between Micah 4 and Revelation 20. It says in Revelation 20, beginning in verse 1, Then I saw an angel 
coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a time, for a little while. And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Now when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. They went up in the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So that's... That's heavy, isn't it? That's I don't I don't think we sit back and think, wasn't that isn't that really happiness? We see people coming up against God to war against him and then they're decimated. That doesn't make us smile. It might and I'd say should make you smile a bit when you read verse ten, not because we are haters. We don't hate. But if you think about the devastation with which Satan has tried to wreak havoc in every generation that the earth has been around, um, we think that's a just and appropriate destination. So we're not too disappointed when we get to verse 10. Is the kingdom described here in these passages something new or something that always has been? This is a question. Is this something new or something that always has been? Is this a description of the, the universal kingdom Or is this something different? I think it's something new. Has God always ruled the heavens? Okay, he has. This is something new, correct? So we're not talking about something he's always done being described here in Revelation 20. Because we know he already rules the heavens. Nothing has changed there. So this is something new and it's not likely talking about ruling the heavens. So this, in my understanding, is something earthly, It's part of fulfilling many texts related to God's kingdom throughout the pages of Scripture. So here's another question. Are the thousand years literal, figurative, or rounding? I'll just let you in, right? On my own personal perspective, it wouldn't violate my conscience, my understanding of the passage, if this were a 990-year rule. Or a 1,010-year rule. Because we see in the Scriptures times where numbers are rounded. So that wouldn't 
doesn't phase me one, year or, or one way or another to say, okay, this has to be um, 360 days times 1,000. That doesn't violate my conscience to say, well, it could be 990, it could be 1,010. But is it just a figurative expression? Is it just a, a period of time, like you know, the day of the Lord? The day of the Lord isn't a 24-hour day, right? It's, it's actually a period of time. Is, is this 1,000 years? Could this be a reference to the year of the Lord? And, and so it's just a duration of time. Some people interpret it that way. I think that it would not be appropriate to, to do that. Some people say that this is a period of time describing the, the, the intervening period between Christ's first coming and Christ's second coming. And they say, well, this is a, a period of time. Well, we already know it's over 2,000 years, right? So now we're, we're not talking about literal in that, in that person's interpretation. We're talking about something that's a, it's a symbol of this age from the first advent to the second advent, Jesus' first coming to the second. Okay, well, we've got those things kind of hanging in, in the air a little bit. Is Satan literally bound? We've got this passage here. It's saying something about him being bound with a chain for a period of time. Is he literally bound? This is a question that needs to be answered to understand this passage properly. Is this just a uh, restriction of certain activities? All right, so I've asked a bunch of questions, and I'm trying to get you to think through these things a little bit. Because while... Knowing the answer to all of these questions is not determinative about your salvation state. In fact, we could disagree about this rather strongly and still be growing Christians. So this is not one of those cardinal doctrines that we have to see eye to eye on. We can disagree about this and not only worship together, serve together, right? We can disagree about these kinds of issues and serve God together. This is not a cardinal doctrine, though it is important. So I want to just present to you a a couple of views on this kingdom concept for your own edification so that you'll understand where you reside and where you might understand where someone else resides theologically on these issues. So I'm going to to, to utilize someone's um, summary of this. His name is Sam Storms. He wrote on amillennialism. Now, amillennialism is ah, meaning not, or no, no kingdom, no thousand-year reign, not seeing Christ as ruling for a duration of time on the earth as described this way. Now, every one of the positions, from my understanding, believes in a personal, visible return of Christ. They all believe in the second coming. But a person who believes in amillennialism would not believe in a duration of time where Jesus is ruling and reigning on the earth, whereas this, there's this Christianized world. Okay, So here, here I'm just going to read a few paragraphs to you for your understanding. Now, am I trying to convince you to be amillennial? No, because I'm not amillennial. Why am I t- reading to you from an amillennialist? So you'll understand them a little bit better if you don't agree with them. And so you can appreciate at least their thinking and be able to disagree or not with their position respectfully and kindly. Okay, here's what he says. Contrary to what the name implies, amillennialists do not believe in a millennium. Millennium. The millennium, millennium, however, is now the present age of the church between the first and second comings of Christ in its entirety is the millennium. Therefore, while the amillennialist does deny the premillennial belief in a 
personal, literal reign of Christ upon the earth for a thousand years, followed by his second coming, he affirms that there is a millennium and that Christ rules. However, this messianic reign is not necessarily for a literal thousand years, and it is wholly, wholly spiritual, not earthly, not visible in nature. This millennial reign is not something to be looked for in the future, writes Hakama. It is going on now and will be until Christ returns. Hence the term realized millennialism is an apt description of the view here defended. If it is to be remembered that the millennium in question is not an earthly but a heavenly reign. So here's his first definition of amillennialism. There it is. Secondly, as to the precise character of this spiritual rule, amillennialists differ. Some con- uh, contend that the millennium is restricted to the blessings of the intermediate state, meaning in heaven, not here. Um, the millennium, as described in Revelation 20, verses 4 through 6, refers to the present reign of the souls of deceased believers with Christ in heaven. So that's what this is their, their thought. Others would go a step further and restrict the experience to the millennial blessings to the martyrs now in heaven with Christ. Okay, so there's some thoughts here. Other amillennialists interpret the millennium as encompassing all the inward spiritual triumphs experienced by the church on the earth. Christ ruling in the hearts of believer, uh, believers, excuse me, Christ ruling in the hearts of believers. By far, this is the most common of the amillennialists' thoughts. Okay, I'm giving you a few more things, okay? Uh, just, I know, this isn't your favorite topic, but you don't want to be a pansationalist. You want to understand these things, so I'm going to give you a little bit more. As a direct corollary, that means a parallel concept or a subsequent con- concept, as a corollary uh, to number two, Amillennialists maintain that there will, therefore, be no millennium in the sense of a semi-golden era of earthly prosperity for the kingdom before Christ returns. There will be no visible earthly expression of Christ's reign over the earth, or the, excuse me, over the whole world. The church will not make disciples of all, or the vast majorities, of the nations, nor will it gain a dominant or widespread influence throughout the world. Thus, it is here... And for all practical purposes, only here, listen carefully to this, that amillennialists differ from postmillennialists. So I just gave you the definition of a postmillennialist, essentially. That is this. There'll be this period of time before Christ returns that the world will be Christianized, that, that um, there'll be prosperity to the church and the gospel, and then as a result of that prosperity of the church and the gospel, Jesus will return visibly. Um, so we've got amillennialism. There's no thousand-year period on the earth where there's prosperity and the gospel flourishes. Post-millennialism, there is this period, but it's before Jesus comes back. He comes back after it, so it's post-millennial. Further, according to the amillennialist, there will be a parallel and contemporaneous development of good and evil in the world, which will continue until the second coming of Christ. He goes on and gives some more information. The idea is this. The millennium, in the mind of the amillennialist, is a literal reign, but it's a literal reign in heaven. And the way that it touches to earth is very much the way that I describe it. I am not an amillennialist, so don't 
Don't tie those things together. Very much the way that I describe it, and that is Christ is present with his people, God is present with his people, so that we then demonstrate his work here. So that we are uh, offering and, and demonstrating God's dominion over the earth. So the, the amillennial says that Christ rules the hearts, and that is how it touches earth. But the reign itself, as described in Revelation 20, is in a heavenly reign. Now, I'm sure there's much more could be said to, to give more clarity to their position. And I want to be very, very clear right now and right here again as a reiteration. There are fine believers and Bible students who hold these positions. So, anything I say about this issue that's in disagreement to it is not in any way denigrating them. Okay? I love them. If they know Jesus as their Savior, they're following Him, I, I, don't, I, I don't really care that they disagree on this issue. Now, I disagree with them, but that's okay. We want to make sure anytime we're addressing issues that can get um, a little hot under the collar about, that we're demonstrating grace. Because as soon as we're not demonstrating grace, we know that we're in the flesh. And when we're in the flesh, nothing good is going to be yielded. Right? Regarding this passage and Satan... The amillennialist says that right now this age spoken of in Revelation 20 is going on. And so I would ask him this question. Well, what about what, about what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 5? Be sober, be vigilant for your adversary the devil. Walks around. He roams around. What's he doing? He's seeking whom he may devour. It doesn't sound chained. It doesn't sound bound. I would ask a, a question regarding Ephesians chapter Six, that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. That we're to hold the shield of faith with which we quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. And, and the person, from my understanding, would respond, well, that's not talking about um, every one of his activities. His restriction, according to this passage, he would say, in Revelation 20 and verse 3, is regarding this statement, so that he should deceive the nations no more, Till the thousand years were finished. So the way that an amillennialist sees Satan as bound is not that he's, he's locked up and can no, have no influence, but that he won't then impact the, the deception of the gospel. And so I would then have a contention with that. And I would contend with two Bible passages. First of all, 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse, verses 3 and 4, where Paul writes this, and he's speaking in the same age that this all was written in. But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has what? Is that the same as deception? Me think so. Deception. He's blinded them. Um, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. What is, what is Paul saying Satan's doing right now? He's trying to deceive the nations. Just like he's tried to deceive Adam and Eve. He deceived the angels in heaven. He tried to deceive us every day, right? So the activity that the amillennial says is bound during the, from the first advent to the second advent is very actively going on. Now Jesus made this statement in Matthew 13. I think it also applies, beginning in verse 19. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, then the wicked one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is he who received seed by the wayside. I, I think that we've got, again, that concept of deception with regard to the word, with regard to the gospel, 
with regard to truth about God and Christ. And so by this, and, and we could really extrapolate many other counters to this, I would say in, the amillennialist doesn't have this concept accounted for accurately. Satan, according to Revelation 20, is bound during this reign discussed, and he's not bound right now. We see it from Scripture, and you've experienced it, correct? That you've experienced that he's not bound? I, I trust that you probably have, in one way or another, experienced that he is not bound. Now, that's regarding Satan. Now, regarding earthly versus heavenly reign, I want you to look at another passage of Scripture, please. Zechariah 14. This is a necessary study for us, folks, because we want to make sure that when we're going through the book of Micah, we're understanding what he's actually saying, not just guessing. And if we don't have some form of an idea as to what's, what he's getting at there, we're, we're not going to understand Micah very well. In Zechariah 14, I'm going to read a lengthy passage. It's God's word, so it will edify you. Right? I'm going to read this lengthy passage, and I want you to, to, to assess... Earthly and heavenly. Now, it is my contention that Zechariah 14 is talking about the similar time frame to Micah chapter 4. And it's my contention that Micah chapter 4 is talking about a similar time frame to Revelation 20. I believe these concepts dovetail together very nicely and give us at least a faint picture of this glorious kingdom. Beginning in verse 1 of Zechariah 14. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, and your spoil will be divided in your midst, and I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. The city shall be taken, the houses rifled, and the women ravished. Half of the city shall go into captivity, but the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then he'll go forth, or he'll come forth, or he'll spring on the scene, then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. And in that day, his feet will, what? Stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. Half of the mountain shall move toward the north, half of it toward the south. Then you shall flee... Through the mountain valley, excuse me, through my mountain valley, for the mountain valley shall reach to Azale. Yes, you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Thus the Lord my God will, what? Come, and all the saints with you. It shall come to pass in that day, in that day, that there will be no light, the lights will be diminished. It shall be one day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening time it shall happen that it will be light. And in that day it shall be that living water shall flow from Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea, half of them toward the western sea. In both summer and winter it shall occur, and the Lord shall be what? He'll be what? Where? Over all the earth. When is that? In that day. It shall be the Lord is one, and his name one. All the land shall be turned into a plain from Geba to Ramon, south of Jerusalem. Jerusalem shall be raised up and inhabited in her place from Benjamin's gate to the place of the first gate and the corner gate. He's giving us little landmarks on the earth. And from the tower of Hananel to the king's wine presses. The people shall dwell in it, and no longer shall be, there be utter destruction. 
but Jerusalem shall be safely inhabited. So we've got earth and people and places and Jesus reigning. His feet will be there. I'm assuming that if his feet are there, the rest of him will be there. Yes? My guess is correct, I think. Verse 12. Now, let's, no, let's pause for just a second. An amillennialist doesn't disagree with the Bible. They say, yeah, yes, 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 yes. They're not going to say, oh, you know, you know, that's not really biblical. They say, yeah, and they say this is taking place in heaven. Or they might say, and I think this is probably more the standard answer is, yes, this will happen when the earth is not the current earth, but the new earth when it's all renovated and everything's the way that it should be. And, and we say, all right, I, I can see that, except there are some troubles. Verse 12, and this shall be the plague, uh, oh, wait a second, plague in the new heaven and in the new earth, or a plague in heaven. I now have a problem. You? Anyone want a plague when you're in heaven? Would you, would you like cancer in heaven? Would you like a plague or cancer when you're dwelling in the new heaven and the new earth? I'm thinking not. So I contend here that this, this can't, doesn't fit very well. There should be a plague which the Lord will strike all the people who fought against Jerusalem. Their flesh shall dissolve. Okay, so maybe they say, well, this is when the Lord comes. Let's get this plague. Their flesh shall dissolve while they stand on their feet. Their eyes shall be dissolved in their sockets. This sounds kind of gruesome. And their tongue shall dissolve in their mouths. But maybe they're saying, okay, well, this is when at, at the, the second coming where they war against him. Okay, well, okay, well, I'll give them that. Verse 13, it shall come to pass in that day that a great panic from the Lord will be among them. Everyone will seize the hand of his neighbor and raise his hand against the neighbor's hand. Judah also will fight at Jerusalem. This doesn't sound, doesn't sound like the future. It doesn't sound like fight. And the wealth of all the surrounding nations shall be gathered together, gold, silver, and apparel in great abundance. Such also shall be the plague on the horse and the mule and the camel and the donkey and on all the cattle that will be in those camps. So shall this plague be. Okay. So we have, we have some, some conversations that need to at least be resolved to, to be on the same page. But verse 16, And it shall come to pass that everyone who is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of tabernacles. And it shall be that whichever of the families of the earth does not come up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, on them... There'll be no what? Rain. If the family of Egypt will not come up and enter in, they shall have no rain. They shall receive the plague which the Lord strikes the nations who do not come up to keep the feast of the tabernacles. This shall be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations. We could keep reading, but you get this doesn't feel like heaven here. And it doesn't feel like the new earth, does it? Do we just, are we doing like a redo? Didn't we already do this? Haven't we already had the failures? When we get to the new heaven and the new earth, I think all that failing stuff is out of the way. So when Christ is reigning on the earth, as this passage is talking about, there's there's something going on. So there's got to be something different than it being a heavenly reign that's being described in Ezekiel 14. Or an eternal kingdom on the new earth that's being described. It's got to be something different, which is what I would say is 
probably why I believe in the millennial reign of Christ, which is a a thousand-year period of time where Christ rules on the earth. It starts with all believers, but they have babies, and babies aren't born saved. Babies aren't born saved. I wish they were, but they're not. They're born sinners. And sinners beget sinners, beget sinners, beget sinners, beget sinners. Talk about a thousand years of that, and what do you get? What do you have? You got a lot of sinners. Now, Jesus is reigning, so that sin is restrained, and it might be kept kind of inside, as opposed to vocalized like it is today. But what's the difference between inside sin and outside sin? Well, only its manifestation. The sin itself is not different. The condemnation is not different. The separation from God is not different. So we, we have some problems here. Now, head back to Micah chapter 4, please. Hopefully I have not thoroughly confused you. What I wanted to go through all that for is to say, okay, there are going to be people that disagree with different concepts. Here's why I stand as when we get to Micah chapter 4, this is not talking about something theoretical. This is not talking about something spiritual that takes place in heaven or something that takes place in the new earth, the new Jerusalem. We're talking about something that takes place on this earth under the reign of Christ, in a kingdom that is here, not spiritual, it's earthy. It is a spiritual kingdom, but it is not only spiritual. It's a spiritual earthly kingdom. It's a visible kingdom. It's a kingdom that will dominate the earth. Okay, so hopefully, I'm not going to say, is that that clear? Because probably someone is saying, "Ah, glad I got an extra hour of sleep today because I would have died partway through this message somewhere. We're, we need to understand what Micah is getting at. And so, all of that having been said, let's see what our passage this morning contributes to our understanding of the kingdom, that, in my opinion, is an earthly kingdom, and how it, will, how it was designed to offer hope to a people hearing of an appropriate discipline that was upon them because of their rebellion idolatry, and sinfulness. So we get back to, to Micah chapter 4. I want to read the, verse, for the five verses again. And what I want you to, hopefully you'll do, is you'll, you'll be kind of remembering the words. We read it responsively. I read it once. I'll read it a third time now. And then I'm just going to talk about it. I'm not going to, not going to keep on referencing different parts of it. Look at what it says beginning in verse 1. Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and peoples shall flow to it. Many nations shall come and say, Come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion the law shall go forth and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He, Jesus, the king shall judge between many peoples and rebuke strong nations afar off. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. But everyone shall sit under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies, has spoken. 
For all people walk each in the name of his God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. So what do we learn here? First of all, God's kingdom will rise to prominence. We have a contrast from verse 12 to verse 1. Verse 12 of chapter 3 to verse 1 of chapter 4. We have rubble and laid bare to chapter 4 verse 1, this rising up. Now, the question you may ask is, does that mean every mountain, every well will be flattened? Maybe yes, maybe no, but I know in the immediate area where Jerusalem is, we just read about an earthquake that was going to take place when Jesus' feet stand on the Mount of Olives and this valley that takes place. So at least in that geographic location, Jerusalem's going to be high. People are going to come up to it. It'll rise to prominence. Secondly, God's kingdom will draw the nations. God's kingdom will draw the nations. Now, this, this really is a nice touchstone from Micah to the book of Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Now, Nebuchadnezzar, you remember, had this dream, and it was, it was a weird dream. He's got this, this big giant statue with a golden head, and, and then the, the chest and arms of silver, and then you've got the, the abdomen of bronze, and then you've got the legs of clay, and then the feet of clay, and, uh, clay and, and iron, iron, and then clay and iron down below. You've got the picture. You've got this thing, and then out of nowhere a piece of rock falls off of a mountain and it starts tumbling down and it smashes into the statue and it grinds the statue to powder. Later on we find out that the head is representative of Babylon and then there are conjectures about the rest of it, but basically you've got Medo-Persia, Greece, Romans, then maybe a revised Roman Empire, all, all the things that go with that. The bigger point, rather than all the specific empires, is this. When this rock hits it, there's no residue of the culture of these other prominent empires. It's not like when one empire takes over another, they take the best parts of their culture and adapt it into theirs. And then, okay, now we've got a a maturation. Now we've got this new culture that has their stuff in it. And then someone else comes in there taking the best of their culture and added it in. So you've got this this very fleshly, very man-made oriented system. No, no, no. When the kingdom comes, friends... All the other stuff is ground to powder. There'll be no residue of all of that cultural stuff. There'll be the real culture. It'll be Christ's culture. It'll be right. Things will be right. All the crooked will be straight. All the, uh, the, the rottenness will be sweet. It'll be something different. So here's what we see in Daniel chapter 2 and verses 44 and following. And the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever, inasmuch as you saw that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. The great God say the only God, has made known to the king what will come to pass after this. The dream is what? Certain. And its interpretation is sure. And earlier on, we see this passage, chapter 2, verses 31 and following. You, O king, you, Nebuchadnezzar, were watching, and behold, a great image, this great image which, uh, whose splendor was excellent stood before you, and its form was awesome. The image's head was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron, partly of clay. You watched while a stone was cut out without hands, which struck the image of its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, 
silver and the gold were crushed together and became like what? Chaff from the summer threshing floor. The wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found. And the stone that struck the image became a great mountain. It did what? What did it do? It filled the whole earth. This is, this is a, a universal, widespread, four corners of the, of the globe kind of kingdom. The whole thing. Under the rulership of whoever this is, I call him Jesus. This is good, good news, friends. God's kingdom will draw the nations. They'll come up. Come, teach us, teach us. We want to hear. All right. Third, we learn from Micah. God's kingdom will ensure peace. God's kingdom will ensure peace. He will judge between the many peoples. It says that at the beginning of verse 3. He will rebuke strong nations afar off. You know what they're going to do? I'm not using these wars of of uh, these instruments of war anymore. I'm just going to turn them into agricultural tools. There's no need for war anymore because there's a there's a ruler that's dominating the globe. And so they will turn their wars instruments into agricultural instruments. They'll do it because they know there's no fight left. God's kingdom will ensure peace. Isaiah's statement is identical to this in Isaiah chapter 2. Fourthly, God's kingdom will produce prosperity. We already read this about the vine. It's, it's quite interesting. If we wrote it, this today, we wouldn't probably talk about vines. We probably wouldn't talk about figs. But we would talk about God providing us everything we need. That's the, God, the, the idea. Not the vine, not the fig. It's about God giving us what we need. God prospering His kingdom. Fifthly, and I'd say most importantly... Maybe? I don't know. God's kingdom will endure forever. As much as I would like this fifth point to, to read something about worship, because it would be wonderful to talk about it, that would not fit the bigger point. The bigger point is this. These nations currently, right now, they're walking each in the name of his God. But I want to tell you about our God and the kind of walk we will have. It's not one that's just current. It's not one that's just contemporary. It's not one that's going to change with the tides of society and culture. We're talking about something that will last forever. He says, we will walk in the name of the Lord forever and ever. This kingdom will not be interrupted and our worship will not be interrupted. So the question that we have to ask about this passage is this. Who could bring all this to pass? Who could bring all this to pass? Can the the church rise to such prominence through our devotion, that we bring forth this type of an environment on the earth. No. No, this is not man-made. Like all spiritual blessings, the blessings of the kingdom can only come from our God through His Son, Jesus Christ. As we turn from chapter 3, and the muck and mire and destruction, to chapter 4, and the glorious rise of Jerusalem, We're watching the sovereign hand of God take rebellious mankind, take idolatrous mankind, take sinful mankind, and give them what they need for life. This is what we see. We see God intervening in history to do what no man could ever do. We are seeing God's sovereign care over his creation. 
We don't have time to turn there, but in Hebrews chapter 1, it talks about this. And I'll I'll give you the, the summary of the passage. He says, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and by whom he made the worlds. And he talks about how he, he, after he made purification for all the people, he sacrificed himself, he sat down. But you know what he also says? He's upholding all things by the word of his power. And that word upholding has the idea of bringing to its final resolution bringing to its final resting place, bringing to its final consummation all that God has made. This is what Jesus does, and only Jesus can do that. You think about the the despair and the despicable things going on that we've read in Micah and and cross-referenced in Ezekiel. All the sexual things, all the idolatrous things, and the judgment that was brought forth And yet God still redeems his people and his creation. Think about that. That is something unique about this God that we love, this God that we serve. Jesus carries it all to its final fitting conclusion. So I ask you this question, what about your life? If God can take something of this wide magnitude, everything he's created, all people of all time, all situations, all nations, every vine, every fig, every tree, every animal, every everything, if God can bring all of this to a fitting conclusion, can he not deal with you in your life? If he is that wide in his scope, is he not also that finite in his scope? When you are dealing with the difficulties of your life, when your life is a mess or the situations around your life are a mess, do you not think that he knows how to deal with that? Do you not think he can deal with those things? If he can deal on this large global scale, can he not deal on this minute scale? Um, The answer is yes, because we know he cares. Maybe you won't experience in this life the kind of blessings that are described in Micah chapter 4. Maybe, maybe because in this age, with Satan not bound, and the difficulty of the curse not undone, maybe you might actually experience cancer. And maybe God won't turn that thing around. Does that leave this passage of, of ill consequence? I say no. Why can I say that? Because if you are one of God's While you may endure pain in this time, the next age is dawning. You know what that means, friends? The time when you're in the presence of God in in fullness. And all those ills that are holding on to you and thwarting you now will be forever removed. So we can walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. And I'd say, as a response to this, let us walk 
with his banner over us. Let us proclaim the goodness of the Lord while we have breath. Your family needs to know the Lord's goodness. Your co-workers need to know the Lord's goodness. We'll talk about this, this situation, and it's like a storybook ending. If you're a believer, if you know Christ, you have a storybook ending too. It just might not be while you're currently breathing this air. It might be when you're breathing celestial air in the presence of God. You can guarantee that's a storybook ending that you won't want to miss. In the midst of despair, Micah offers hope. In the midst of our despair, I want to offer you hope. That's what this passage is about. Hope. Because Christ reigns. The Lord reigns. And there is no end to that reign. Let's pray together. Father, help us. Help us while some of these concepts may be challenging to some, might be riveting to others, might be loathsome to others. I don't know. You do. I know I'm thankful that I know your kingdom is coming. I know that I'm thankful that you've taken me out of the kingdom of darkness and placed me into the kingdom of your dear son. I'm thankful that my king reigns in heaven and in my heart. And we know that all authority is is his, both in heaven and on earth.